there are certain places on planet Earth, certain landscapes and environments and terrains that conjure up for us really specific human emotions, often to the point where we equate that place with a certain emotion. For example, when we think of the mountains, we are reminded of the world's wildness and humanity's smallness. Every time I go to the mountains, I, I recognize just how unconquerable and untamable that wilderness is. It's much bigger than me. Um, it's easy to be filled with awe in the presence of the mountains. Oceans carry a similar sense of awe, especially for those raised as land lovers on the Great Plains of Alberta. Natasha, you're from Nova Scotia, right? So you probably see the ocean in a completely different way than I do, or many of us do. It, it's much more commonplace for you. But for us, when we, we grew up in the vast prairies, the ocean is so vast and unending that it, the, the awe sometimes becomes dread. And it's so, it's so big, it's what lies below, what lies beneath the surface that captures our imagination and fills us with that dread, or fills me anyway. Um, swamps, swamps feel pungent and stagnant and ugly, and our language reflects that. We'll say, I'm really swamped at work, I'm really bogged down in the details. A quagmire is a frustrating no-win situation, but it's also, also literally a synonym for marshland. So our language re reflects what we think of swamps. They're gross, pungent, stinky. Get away from them. You'll get stuck in them. That's what we think of them. Meadows and gardens, on the other hand, are places of bounty and beauty and delight. They make us feel alive and alert. Deep forested woods are places of mystery and spirituality and uncertainty. It's a place where you could just as easily lose yourself as find yourself. It's not that any of these places are inherently better than any other. It's not that a swampland has less value than a beautiful tropical coastline. That's not true at all. My friend Matthew, he finds just as much delight in a handful of pond scum from Wakameo as he does on the beautiful shores of, of Lake Superior because he knows what he's looking for. He sees goodness in, in, in those things. But different aspects of creation just seem to carry certain feelings for us as humans. It's why we take the youth kids to Jasper every year and not Flatbush. <laughs> I think you know what's wrong with Flatbush, Trish. It's just not the mountains. And, and the Bible picks up on these themes as well. The story of creation takes place in a lush garden, not a swamp. There's a different feel. God speaks to his people from mountaintops, delivering the law from the heights of Mount Sinai, not the, the dead valley of the Dead Sea. And while Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, he, he doesn't give the speech from the tropical beach. It's the Sermon on the Mount. There's something authoritative about mountains in that way. And the dread that we feel at the edge of the ocean is a very ancient feeling. There's actually a word for it, thalassophobia. means fear of the sea. And that was picked up by the authors of Scripture who characterized all the evil chaos of the world and called it the deep. And in the creation account, God is separate from the deep. He is above the deep and he subdues the deep with merely a word. He is more powerful than all the evil chaos in our lives. Jesus walks upon the deep, unharmed, and commands it with a word, just like his father did. Places have purpose and power in scripture, as they do in the lives of everyday humans across the globe. So we're going to talk about one such place that is common throughout scripture. It's a place people go when they are fleeing from trouble, and a place that they go in order to face their troubles. It's a place that seems to be lifeless and barren by nature, but there's always a glimmer of vitality in these stories. 
It's a place visited by many of the greatest heroes in the unfolding saga of God redeeming his people. In fact, it's often a place where God's people go to experience that redemption firsthand, to have their sorrows and their worries and their temptations burned away. Though it's a place of emptiness and desperation, we'll see how God uses the desert to deliver his people through it by making a way for them. And hopefully we'll see how he does the same for us. As I mentioned, the desert or the wilderness is a remarkably commonplace location for the people of God in the stories of Scripture. Although that probably makes a whole lot of sense. After all, most of the Bible takes place in either ancient Palestine or ancient Egypt, and it's not hard to find wild, deserty places in either of those locations. If you do a Google Maps satellite uh, picture search of Jerusalem and see what the terrain is, there's a lot of bare mountains all around them. A lot of sandy brown desert land all around them. And the arid, salty Dead Sea is to the immediate east. There are dead, barren wastelands all around that part of the world in the Middle East. Everywhere you look, you see deserts in the stories of Scripture. You also see pasture lands and forests and rivers and vineyards. Of course, it's not all barren wasteland. That would be ridiculous to say. But it makes sense that many of the most iconic stories in the Bible are centered around the desert because there is so much of that around the places where the stories of Scripture take place. But what is remarkable is the consistent theme of these desert stories. And that theme is God making a way. The desert is very rarely a dwelling place for our heroes. Rather, it's a place that is visited. It's a place where major transitions happen. But it's a temporary place, a place where God shows up to guide, instruct, discipline, and bless before calling his people out into their new transformed realities. So we're going to look at a few stories today. The first story takes us all the way back to the father of faith, Abraham. And by that, of course, we mean that he is the father not just of faith, but of faiths, plural. Because Christianity, Judaism, and Islam all find their origins in the offspring of Abram, Abraham. The story of the Old Testament follows the line of Abraham's son Isaac, from whom came Jacob, Judah, David, and eventually Jesus. It's the line of Isaac that receives the covenant blessings that are so crucially central to the story of God working with his people. So all those promises go through Isaac, but Isaac was not Abraham's firstborn son. He was his wife Sarah's firstborn son, but he was not Abraham's firstborn son. And the story of the birth of Abraham's firstborn son is truly a blemish on the name of our heroic father of faith. What plays out in this story feels like something ripped right from days of our lives. By Genesis 16, Abraham, who was then still called Abram, had already been promised descendants beyond number that outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the seashore. But Old Abe was getting into his 90s, and he had no kids yet. Old Abe. Sorry, Abe. Don't take offense to that. Yeah, that's right. He's a completely different situation. So Abe was getting into his 90s, no kids yet. So his wife, Sarai, who was not yet named Sarah, came up with a plot. Sarai had an Egyptian slave named Hagar, who was technically her property. So if Abram slept with Hagar, maybe Hagar would bear the promised child. And Hagar gets pregnant, and that's where things really go downhill and into the desert. Hagar begins to get a little proud and boastful around her barren mistress, which provokes Sarai's jealous wrath. 
she gives her husband this dramatic ultimatum. You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. This is straight out of Genesis 16. You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Basically, big guy, you need to choose between me and this worthless slave girl that you got knocked up, even though it was my idea to get her pregnant. So who's it going to be? And in, in what is truly one of the most heartbreaking and inhumane responses in all of scripture, Abram responds with, what do I care? She's not even my slave. She's your slave. Do with her whatever you want. That's what our father of faith says about a fellow human being. It's not my slave. Do with her whatever you want. And so Sarai does indeed do whatever she wants. And what she wants in her envy and anger is to make Hagar's life such a living hell that she flees with her unborn child into the desert, which she does in chapter 16. And that's where God makes his dramatic introduction. An angel finds Hagar stooped beside a desert spring, weeping silently in the dusty wind of the barren wilderness, Through her tears, though, she hears a question. Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? Hagar responds, well, I'm running away from my mistress. The angel then gives two instructions. One that a runaway servant would definitely expect to hear. And another one that would have been absolutely shocking to a person conditioned to be identified as property. She is told, go back to your mistress and submit to her. That's, of course, that's what she's told. That's what all runaway slaves were told. Go back to your mistress and submit. There's no surprise there. But she is almost, or she is also given this promise. The angel, the voice piece of God, says, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The same promise that Abraham got. Not just a descendant, but a prosperous and important descendant. She expected to die in the desert. Instead, she is found by God himself and receives the greatest blessing that a slave girl could hope for. Her child would be great and mighty, if not combative and hostile, as part of the prophecy. But he would be free, and he would be hers. That son would prove to be Ishmael, from whom we can trace our spiritual cousins, the Muslim people. But there's more. Not only was she seen and found in the desert, not only was she redeemed and given great promises in the desert, but Hagar actually takes an enormously powerful step of faith forward after that. In response to the promise of a formidable descendant, Hagar actually does a thing that no other person in scripture does. She gives a name to the God who redeems her. Most people ask for a name or they name a place in honor of what God has done. They name a place. But nobody in all of scripture presumes to name God himself. Hagar does. Genesis 16, 13 says, She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. Uh, Rohath Lahai or something. Lahath, Lahath, I should have written it down, I forget. But you are the God who sees me, is the name that she gives to God. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. And she names the well there. There's this miraculous well that shows up. She names it Be'ar and then whatever, Lahath Roy or whatever it is. She names God. There she is, a foreigner and a slave and a woman, alone in the desert, expecting to die until God finds her. And then this foreign slave woman is given a great blessing and commits a sacred act that not even her master Abram ever dared to attempt. She names the Almighty. She gives God a name. 
the God who sees. The God who sees fixes his eyes on her in her moment of desperation and lifts her up, blesses her, and allows himself to be characterized by her. Her. Hagar, an absolute outsider with no national or economic or financial or religious or social right to receive such a blessing or execute so audacious a proclamation. Who is this woman who dares to name God? You cannot get any lower than Hagar on the hierarchical totem pole of ancient Palestine. Foreigner, female, slave. But God sees her. He sees her in the desert and he blesses her in the desert and he allows himself to be named by her in the desert. From lowest of lows to glorious status, not because she's pregnant with Abraham's son, but because she is loved by her creator. Because of one desert encounter with the Almighty. Sadly, this would not be the last time Hagar needed to encounter God in the desert. After Isaac is born to Sarah in Genesis 21, Sarah's petulant anger arises again and she demands that Abraham send away his illegitimate firstborn son and her filthy slave mother, which he does, but only after God promises Abraham that he will watch over Hagar and Ishmael. Unfortunately, however, nobody thinks to tell Hagar about this protective warning from God. And so when the little food and water that Abram had provided sorry, Abraham by now, when the little food and water that Abraham had provided runs out in the desert, miles out actually in the desert of Beersheba, what she does is she places the boy down in the dust and she walks away, it says, a bow's shot away because she cannot bear to watch her son die in front of her. That's how desperate things are. Once again, she finds herself weeping in the lonely desert. And once again, God shows up to meet her. What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. Sorry, I mentioned in the first story there was a miraculous well of water. It's the second story. It's this one. So she went and filled the skin with water, the the drinking skin, with water, and gave the boy a drink. And as a beautiful epilogue, Genesis 21 adds, God was with the boy as he grew up. So the God who sees, sees her and her child out there in the desert. For Hagar, the wilderness, the desert had been a place of abuse and abandonment, of dehumanization and depression. But God turned it into a way towards blessing and reinstatement and providence. Isaiah 51.3 reads, The Lord will surely comfort Zion and Hagar and will look with compassion on all her ruins. He will make her deserts like Eden her wastelands like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the sound of singing. Out of the desert comes the sound of singing, comes blessing and reward. God sees her in the desert. The next story takes us to Moses, a story we've examined many times in the last few years, a story wrapped up in the formation of God's firstborn child, Israel. Moses, raised in the palace of Egypt, is not used by God to to deliver his people from a position of power within the greatest nation on planet Earth. You'd think if God was going to make change for the Israelite people as slaves in Egypt, he would do it when Moses is like second in command of all Egypt. But he doesn't. Rather, Moses is forced to flee where? Into the desert, 
the deserts of Midian, to be reborn as a humble, lowly shepherd. It's from this lowly position, herding sheep in the wilderness, that Moses encounters a wondrous sight, a flaming bush that doesn't burn up. The presence of God waited for his servant to abandon the prestige and power of Egypt and embrace the smallness and simplicity of desert life before selecting Moses as his mouthpiece of deliverance. I find that remarkable. God didn't use Moses when he was prestigious, elevated, first, second in command. He uses Moses when he's a desert wanderer, when he's a nobody, a shepherd in the middle of nowhere, with no intention whatsoever of going back to the place where he had to flee, he was ostracized from. But after Moses becomes the arbiter of God's mighty acts of salvation, he's left with leadership over a couple million very grumbly Israelites. They'd seen God turn the Nile to blood, turn a cloud of dust into a plague of gnats, turn the bright Egyptian sky into utter darkness, and turn every firstborn son of Egypt into a lifeless corpse overnight. They'd seen his protective guidance manifest as a cloud of fire and smoke, as a sea splitting apart right to the bottom, and as an entire enemy army swallowed up by those waves collapsing down on them. They'd seen all of this, experienced all this power firsthand, and days later they refused to believe that that same God could provide them with a simple meal. He's done all of that, And now they're hungry and they don't believe God can do anything about it. They complain and grumble in the desert, even wishing they were back in slavery to Egypt rather than free servants of the Almighty. And so God gives them water from rocks and manna from dew and quail from the wilderness. And they eat and drink their fill, but they're never satisfied. The desert should have sparked their trust in him. Instead, the sands and stones regularly snuffed out their trust in him. And for that, the desert would come to represent something painful for God's people. Discipline. All their disobedience and all their selfish, faithless complaining will catch up to them until, as it says in Numbers 32, the Lord's anger burned against Israel and he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the whole generation of those who had done evil in his sight was gone. The desert should have been a place of trust and reliance on God. Instead, it became a place where their rebellious nature was responsible was exposed under the white-hot sun. So the desert can be a place where God sees you, it can be a place where God redeems you, and it can be a place where God disciplines you. But even there, in their rebelliousness and selfishness and disobedience, God makes a way for his people. Here's Deuteronomy 8, 2-5. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years, to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone. Talked about that at communion. But on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out and your feet did not swell during those 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. It's not necessarily a punishment that they wandered in the desert for 40 years. It's a discipline. Discipline has a corrective purpose. He had them wander in the desert so they would learn to trust him again. A few chapters later, here's Deuteronomy 8, or sorry, 32, 10 to 12. In a desert land he found Israel, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded them and cared for them. He guarded Israel as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them aloft. The Lord alone led Israel. No foreign god was with them. 
What a beautiful passage that is. The desert was a place of testing and discipline, as any good father offers. But it was also a place of care and protection and guidance from God alone. He sees them in all their brokenness, and he refuses to give up on them. So he put his wing over them for protection, and he lifts them up on his wings for glorification. The desert made all of that possible. Next, so from the father of faith in Abraham to the freer of God's people in Moses, we go to the greatest prophet in Old Testament history, Elijah. These are some heavyweights, right? Abraham, Moses, Elijah, it doesn't get a whole lot greater. I had a story for David too, but I cut it um, because it's already plenty long. David spends his time fleeing from Saul in the desert, and he has to learn some things. But we're going to go to Elijah. When you think of Elijah, there's usually usually one story from 1 Kings 18 that comes to mind. The contest between the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. The false prophets, they can't get their gods to accept their sacrifice. But Elijah's god consumes the bull with fire from above. And even, even though he had drenched the bull and the altar, the fire comes down and consumes it all. Proving that God is not only real, but powerful. It's a timeless demonstration of faith and a devastating takedown of false idols that convinces the people to turn back to God. But it's what happens next that takes us surprisingly to the desert. The king of Israel at the time was a pretty useless piece of work named Ahab, who was married to the infamously treacherous Jezebel. When Jezebel hears of Elijah's victory and how he wiped out all the prophets of Baal, she swears to kill God's all-star prophet. Elijah's reaction? Well, he had just faced down an entire religion's worth of idolatrous priests. He had just commanded them all to be murdered by the sword and had rededicated the people back to the one true God. So you'd think Elijah would have some backbone to stand up to this wicked queen. Nope. Instead, Elijah flees in fear to the desert wilderness of Beersheba, which was the same desert that Hagar had fled to. Once there, overcome by crushing depression, Elijah sits under a bush and begs God to let him die. In fact, he's quoted as saying, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. That's either one day or several days after his great victory on Carmel. This great mountaintop victory. And here he is fleeing to the desert and begging God to kill him. Well, God doesn't take Elijah's life in the desert. He doesn't let him succumb to depression and anxiety and fear. Instead, God wakes Elijah up where he sees fresh baked bread and a jar of water. Man cannot live on bread alone, but sometimes you got to have bread. And so after a second helping, Elijah is strengthened enough to run 40 days and nights to Mount Horeb, where he will once again encounter God face to face. But for us, the point of Elijah's desert story is this. Elijah had just experienced the glorious heights of tremendous faithful victory. It doesn't get much greater than what Elijah accomplished on Carmel. But hours later, at the first glimpse of disapproval and persecution, there's our man crawling under a bush wishing he was dead. If that doesn't sound like an emotionally conflicted and mentally unwell person, I don't know what does. But once again, as with Hagar and Moses and the rebellious generation of Israelites, God sees his servants in in their lowliness and makes a way in the desert. He doesn't abandon Elijah to his depression. Instead, he gives his servant everything he would need to be strengthened enough to serve powerfully once again. And it isn't much. It's a little bread and a little water. That's all it takes. But the real power wasn't in the bread and the water. The real power was in being seen and being given away back to God. Not that God had ever left, mind you. 
Elijah's self-loathing and fearfulness and anxiety couldn't drag him away from the God who saw him and strengthened him and reinstated him there in the desert of Beersheba. Here's Isaiah 35. And it practically sounds like it was written about Elijah's desert experience. It wasn't, but it sounds like it could have been. It says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. And it continues. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Again, what a beautiful passage based in the desert. Well, It starts as a desert, and it gets transformed into something glorious. But how beautiful is that? Water coming to parched souls, strength coming to feeble hands, salvation coming to fearful hearts, a way through the desert made available, a highway of holiness for those who have been rescued, and those who follow his path sing with an everlasting gladness and joy that chases away the sorrow and the sighing and the pleas for death under broom trees in the desert. That doesn't trivialize mental illness or marginalize those who weep and grieve and suffer and who cannot control their emotional selves. That's not to say, hey, get over yourselves. That's not what this passage is saying. It simply means that there is a highway that runs through the midst of that dry, lifeless place they find themselves in. A way of joy and service that refreshes and enlivens and strengthens when you're in the desert. Fear like Elijah, and loneliness, like Hagar, and obscurity, like shepherd version of Moses, and rebelliousness, like the Exodus generation of Israelites, all of these threaten to waylay us in the wilderness. These are all things that get us out into the desert, and we see no hope ahead of us. They threaten to dry us up and bury us in the sands of suffering and sadness and self-satisfaction. But there is good news. The God who sees us, well, the God who sees us, sees you. He sees you and he cares about you and he guides you and he strengthens you and he saves you. You are not alone in the wilderness. You need not shrivel up and die in the desert. I want to finish quickly with two more New Testament desert stories. Both are born out of Old Testament desert stories. Both confirm that our God knows the desert that we journey through and prepares a way out for us. And both are found in back-to-back chapters of Luke as well as Matthew and Mark. But we're going to look at Luke. In Luke 3, we meet John the Baptist. But by then, we had already met him before. In Luke 1, we meet him in the birth narrative. And we know that he will be a great and powerful prophet. In fact, Luke 1.17 tells us that John the Baptist would go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of who? Which Old Testament prophet? He will go on in the spirit of Elijah, who we just heard about. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord, which was Elijah's purpose too. Well, we've met John the Baptist before. We met him a thousand years earlier in the person of the prophet Elijah. And here's John the Baptist who's like Elijah part two. 
like Elijah, John will go out into the desert wilderness, but not to lay down in fear and plead for death. Rather, John would go head out to the wilderness around the Jordan River and proclaim with fearlessness the coming Messiah and plead for people not to turn from their sins and, and prepare for not death, but life. Luke introduces us to John's ministry this way. It says, He went into all the wild country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet this. So this is Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling in the wilderness or calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. There's that highway of holiness again. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall become straight, the rough way is smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. That's what it says in Luke about John the Baptist, quoting Isaiah 40. So John is not in the desert experiencing loneliness or obscurity or rebellion or depression like those other stories we've looked at already. He's in the desert to serve others who are in the middle of their painful desert experiences. And he's there to make straight and smooth paths for them back towards life. He was there to build roads towards Jesus. He's not there in the desert for himself. He's there for others to find Jesus. Baptism was to point their hearts towards repentance. It was like the well beside Hagar or the the jar of cool drink beside Elijah when he woke up. Baptism was the water that refreshed and refocused them for the task ahead, the task of obedience and selfless service. John proclaimed that all people, even those of low social status like foreign slave woman Hagar or fugitive shepherd Moses, in fact, not just even, but especially those of low social status like Hagar and Moses, they are the people who would especially, like all people, get to see God's salvation. All people were directed towards his highway of holiness to quote what we read earlier in Isaiah 35, and all people, no matter what their reason for being in the desert, would find strength and guidance and refreshment for their feet, hearts, and souls. So that's Luke 3. What comes after Luke 3? Anybody know? Luke 4. Thank you, Barb. That's not a, not a trick question. After Luke 3 comes Luke 4. And in Luke 4, Jesus begins his public ministry by wandering in the desert for 40 days and nights, which is a very weird way to kick off your inauguration. Well, Israel too spent 40 in the desert, 40 years. It was a disciplinary act, one intended to turn them back towards God. This is what we read earlier from Deuteronomy 8. It says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Well, Jesus heads off on a very similar journey as the Israelites themselves. He heads off into the desert of Judea for the exact same reason, to be humbled and tested and to refine his reliance on his father. Interestingly, Satan tells a famished Jesus, hey man, you must be hungry, maybe even hangry. Why not simply command this stone to turn to bread? You're the son of God after all, aren't you? And Jesus replies by quoting Deuteronomy 8, word for word, man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. For Jesus, the desert was a necessary place of testing and humbling and preparing. No one could be saved until Jesus went into the desert to lay down the blueprints for his highway to holiness. He had to experience the brutal temptations of the desert in order to fully understand the desert experiences of the humanity he came to save. Like Hagar and Ishmael, Jesus was a rejected firstborn son. 
Like Moses, he gave up all the privileges of royalty to live as an anonymous nobody in the desert. Like Israel, he wandered and suffered and was tempted for 40, 40 days instead of 40 years, sorry, to learn that the bread we really need comes from God and not self. And like Elijah, Jesus' triumphant victory went hand in hand with crushing spiritual agony and physical pain and emotional lowliness. I don't know what desert you are facing this morning, what desert you are wandering through this morning. Maybe it's a desert of low self-worth or neglect from those who should have cared for you. Maybe it's the desert of low social standing or total loneliness. In that case, you are in the same desert as Hagar. Maybe you are in a desert of regret over past mistakes, a desert of humiliation. Maybe you're in a desert wishing you could be where God's people are, longing to be where God's people are. In that case, you are in the same desert as Moses. Maybe you're in the desert because you require discipline. Maybe your desert is one of your own making, a barren wasteland of selfish choices and empty desires. Maybe your desert seems endless with no promised land in sight, and you wish you were more obedient and more grateful. In that case, you are in the same desert as the nation of Israel. Maybe you are in a desert of deep-seated emotional pain that's beyond your control. Maybe it's the lifelessness of depression, or the sandstorm of anxiety, or the scorching heat of fear and alienation. Maybe you are longing for the mountaintop experiences of yesterday, yesteryear. Maybe you're in the desert of doubt or worry or stress, unsure of when or if you'll ever drink deeply of life again. In that case, you are in the same desert as Elijah. Whatever desert you are currently in or have been in or will one day be in, know this. Jesus went into the, into the desert to experience what all humans experience in their deserts, what you experience in your desert. There is no desert you've been in that he hasn't already visited. And you know what? While he was there, he carved out a pathway for you to get out. A highway of holiness, as it says in Isaiah. A way through the wilderness. And that path is simply himself. He is the path in the wilderness. He is the bread that strengthens us to run back to his presence like Elijah. He is the living water that refreshes and satisfies like Elijah and like Hagar. He is the one who blesses us in our unworthiness and our suffering like Hagar. He is the pillar of fire in the desert that guides us to freedom like the Israelites. He is the mother eagle who shelters us with his wings and lifts us on high with him, as it says in Isaiah. He is the father who disciplines but then embraces us with compassion, as it says in Deuteronomy. He is the God who sees, as Hagar labeled him. He is the God who sees because he has been in these deserts before. And he is the promised land at the edge of the desert that we will reach one day with songs of victory and joy and thankfulness and praise, as it says in Isaiah. He has been in your desert, and he is there with you now preparing a pathway out. What you need to do is trust that he's there and follow him out. Life and strength and joy await. We're going to close by reading this, Psalm 63:1, all together in one voice. Let's say it together. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. He knows that you're in a place where water is hard to find. If you're in that place, maybe you're not. 
He knows the deserts you're in. He's been in these deserts before and he prepares a way out. And the way out is simply to follow him, to trust him and follow him. That doesn't mean you'll never hurt again. Doesn't mean you won't be depressed again. Doesn't mean that you won't feel lonely again. It just means that you'll have a companion in the desert who sees you, who cares about you, and who knows the way forward. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, each of us has been in the desert. Each of us has felt these painful things that Hagar and Elijah and Moses and Israel and John the Baptist and you yourself have experienced. We, each one of us has been in a desert, but Jesus, you have been in those deserts too. And I thank you for those desert experiences. I thank you for the way that they discipline us and refine us and burn away impurity and, and call us to focus on you and follow you. Thank you for those desert experiences. And Jesus, I pray that each one of us will be able to follow you more closely, follow you to a way that is refreshing and satisfying and brings life and goodness and joy. Help us to follow you, whatever desert we're in, help us to follow you and to know you and and to be seen by you. Thank you for seeing us, Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. He sees you and he cares about you and he guides you and he strengthens you and he saves you. You are not alone in the wilderness. You need not shrivel up and die in the desert. What comes after Luke 3? Anybody know? Luke 4. Thank you, Barb.